Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Reproducibility. I am Sam Parsons, joined by Amy Auburn. Hello. Um, Sophia can't be with us today, but we do have a very special guest in Katie Drax. Hello. Um, thanks for joining us, Katie. No trouble. Um, so people in the Twitter sphere might know you as at Katie Drax. Um, everyone <laughs> exactly should follow you. Name. It's brilliantly, yeah. I know, but yeah. I don't know. I guess, I it, <laughs> it might be something weird. You never know. Um, and uh, Katie started a reproducibility journal club mm-hmm. in Bristol. Um, so I've been using you as an example of how to, uh, or Bristol as how to, be a kind of really good example of a reproducibility journal club oh, nice. because you actually do an amazing job at actually posting <laughs> everything online <laughs> yeah um i think that's i mean i think that's quite a selfish thing also because i use the osf like literally as like a second hard drive so that's also my convenience um <laughs> but it's nice that i'm an example <laughs> <laughs> so how did it come about? What kind of gave you the impetus to to try and start the journal club? Um, I actually can't remember. I think I can't remember if it was Marcus who came up to me, uh, Marcus Manafo, or who is my supervisor, um, or it was me seeing you guys doing it and thinking it was really cool. Um, I'm going to go with Marcus suggesting it because that feels more humble and I literally can't remember. Um, but... So Marcus, um, Marcus came up to me in um, in the in a cafe. Um, we were just crossing paths and and said that we should try by sort of getting getting some facilitators first um, across all the departments, um, like maybe from uh, maybe just staying within life sciences, so like biology and um, like anthropology, maybe and like possibly going into some humanities, but basically trying to keep it within life sciences. And that just didn't work. Like, um, I sent out quite, like, I think about three emails to, like, the entire life sciences department. And I got, like, two responses and just had no interest, really. Um, I'm not sure why that was, um, but that just didn't work. So so basically just then started doing what um, Ben Farah sort of said yesterday is how he started his Cambridge reproducibility while just sort of chatting among friends and it slowly grew and that's basically how I started once the facilitator thing didn't pan out um but it was a good it was good to figure out that that didn't work and to try a different route yeah I'm always kind of curious about how um something it's it seems to be a kind of common thread that in the ideal world we'd kind of spread the word about Mm. reproducibility and openness and kind of all of this stuff but it seems to be really psychology that is the the main player, I guess, at the minute. So trying to kind of convince people that they should be getting involved or that you want to hear what they their views are. Mm. And often maybe they don't even have views yet because they're not kind of uh, as aware, maybe. Yeah. I don't know whether also maybe it, it makes more sense in psychology as well because, like, when you start undergraduate – it fe- I don't know, when I found out about the reproducibility issues, it made a lot of sense because I didn't exactly go into si- into psychology being like, well, this is clearly a very rigorous and very sort of ground truth based science. 
so that kind of made sense that people were finding problems um but that was just when i was an undergrad so i don't know maybe it fits the narrative of like psychology or i don't know i think it's no also it's bigger. it's hard to join conversation you know to make conversations between disciplines in any way shape or form that's how why interdisciplinary science is so hard and I think also for reproducibility issues I feel like we often think that we you know like I think the the conversation would be a lot better if we had a lot of different disciplines but also be very different because I think in psychology we have a very specific uh, notion of what that is and in other disciplines um, they might have completely different problems so actually mm-hmm. finding that common ground to have conversation will probably be more difficult yeah yeah no definitely I definitely it's yeah I, I mean I don't know it seems to be the thing that is very easy to talk about is methods so like stuff that sort of everyone would understand so like transparency is super easy in like when we have our reproducibility journal club because I have people from like psychology but also like medical stats and someone working in veterinary science and a few other people in sort of quite random sort of places um and also like sort of film studies as well it's it's quite spread but like so the one that's the one that's sort of integral to science anywhere so like replication transparency um not having like data dredging sort of um that seems to be quite understandable to everybody yeah i always think that's why um talking about for example registered reports with a non-scientist is such an easy conversation (laughs) yeah um just purely because saying that i don't know maybe knowing how you're gonna analyze your data and run your study before you actually do it is a good idea it's Mm. quite an easy thing for kind of everybody to grasp well Mm. Um, yeah. You guys were at the UK RN, so the UK Reproducibility Network working group meeting yesterday, wasn't it? So that's yeah. where you was there. Was that kind of a mixture of people? Um, it was. I thought they did a really good job, clearly trying to engage different disciplines because we had those like I don't know if anyone saw them on Twitter. We had these little um, lanyards with our names but also had like different animals for whichever discipline we were in. And so like psychology was a dinosaur and neuroscience, I think was an elephant. Is that right? Sam, do you remember? I, I think so. Yeah. But, um, but the general idea was that like, you can seek out people if you're def- if you're really interested in like different conversations across disciplines, you can immediately like try and seek out people from a different discipline. Um, rather than, I don't know, having a conversation with someone and then being like, oh, we both study psychology or something. Yeah, and I think, um, so currently the UK Reproducibility Network is, I think they haven't attempted to focus mostly on psychology, but I think kind of like we've already said, most of the conversation is currently going on within psychology, so it's kind of only natural Mm -hmm. that most people are, that kind of were there, I think, were in psychology. But we also had, um, I think there was a, a mathematician somewhere. There's a few people from more kind of um, uh, kind of physical sciences, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure, kind of slightly more on the psycho- uh, psychiatry end of things as well, Yeah, which is definitely an area that this hasn't quite hit home yet. Yeah. Um, well, in physical sciences. 
Um, yeah, I think in physical, but then also in um, in psychiatry, for example. Um, oh. I mean, I I had maybe a slightly naive perception that like you already have the clinical trial register, you have to kind of do protocols and stuff. So surely people are aware that like not doing all of this long list of bad things is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's actually not, <laughs> not the case. Um, sadly. Um, what were the main things you guys learned during the conference or realized or kind of key takeaways? Um, I mean, it was the first time I had ever been to any open science community, big gathering thing. Um, and like my main takeaway was just being almost shocked at how absolutely wonderful everyone was. Like just everyone was just so unbelievably nice and just sort of there seemed to be such a sense of immediate like, oh, what are you doing? Like, how are you helping? Like, yeah, I'd love to. I'm so glad you're here and involved. And yeah, it was just, yeah. So that was, that was a pretty good takeaway. Um, what about you, Sam? Oh, um, so I, I always feel that exact same way at kind of every gathering of sort of open science kind of people. Um, mm. They're always my favorite meetings just purely because mm-hmm. you you don't have you don't have to have the discussions about kind of have you thought about this within your methods? Maybe mm. this could be an issue or um, or have you considered doing this positive thing to kind of elevate the study to a kind of higher level? Mm. Um, so kind of already having people on that kind of same same understanding is really nice i always feel like that's kind of my my people i guess um so i i really love these kind of meetings for that side of things um it was really good for me because i I mean i got to to meet people that i've only ever met on twitter um got to meet a collaborator um shout out to james hey james Uh, who's james james who uh, James Bartlett, whose Twitter I do not remember, but we will link to. It's probably to. at James um, Bartlett. <laughs> yeah, n- knowing me today, that's probably the case. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we've we've been working on a project for for months now together, sort of on the side, without having met in person. So it's kind of yeah. it's kind of weird to do it the the opposite way around and yeah. sort of meet people after you've already started working together. But it's really nice. I always um, find it awkward. And being able to awkward. kind of share experiences. Sorry, sorry, Sam. Um, I, I always find it like, yeah, it's like, you know, you're there going like, hey, you're like my friend. Should I like hug you or should I like introduce myself or should I be like awkward wave, you know? And I think you kind of get over it. But every time I'm still kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're just there going like, oh, oh social situation. I don't know how to handle <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a good icebreaker though like if you go up to everyone you're like oh i know you from twitter isn't that weird like isn't this a bit strange yeah it's pretty much everyone's co- everyone's starter conversations i had yeah um, you're not kind of starting from cold which is really nice um yeah, was there a, a particular talk that stood out to you bearing in mind um, that if you don't say mine i'll be really upset or your supervisors <laughs> <I> mean- <laughs> I wasn't there. Um, I went to um, I went to the talk about 
um because yours was parallel to the other talks about open science working groups um it, with um chris chambers and um ben Farah and other people um and so i went to that one i'm afraid so i'm just gonna have to admit to that um but i oh, heard it went really well sorry <laughs> um but that that sounded like a useful session i think that was um really introducing people to how to get involved within the networks i think right yeah yes um but also i just didn't really know sort of what an open science working group would entail um and i think marcus has um some plans to set one up in Bristol. So I thought I should probably sort of figure out what a sort of day in the life of an open science working group was, um, which was useful. Um, so yeah. what, what, what are the, if we have listeners thinking of setting up an open science working group, what would be the, the key points that you think you learned at that session? So Chris was saying, um, Chris Chambers made, um, again, made the point of trying to get people involved from across disciplines, um, but also said that still 90% of his working group is mainly psychologists. But I think, I think it's definitely the point is to start out with that intention of trying to get people from as many disciplines as possible. And so Chris said that they threw out an, in, um, an invite to the group across like the entire, almost the entire university by the sounds of it. Um, and that they did get some interest and that it is sort of still sort of growing. Um, but a day in the life, as far as I could tell, was um, have, a, have an agenda. And so you start out with lunch, is what Chris said. Lunch was always helpful, free food, um, to get everyone in. And then you have a bit of general discussion and chatting for like 10 minutes. And then you set an agenda and you stick to it and the meetings are normally about an hour and a half long um, and just discuss sort of all things open science about any kind of, if you're thinking about uh, setting up a school standard, um, then start talking about maybe what the contents of that would be. Or um, Chris was saying how they sort of um, started with a survey about um, what people's attitudes towards open science practices are so they could use that to start informing their future agendas and that kind of stuff but it's very it sounds very free form and very much sort of what you're interested in and what your school will be interested in mm. yeah I think that will probably be very dependent and I think even if we talk about kind of journal clubs you know your reproducibility is very different from ours because ours is still very much based in psychology and yours is more diverse mm. and different universities and I think you know everybody has different issues and and that they want to tackle and, and different different communities themselves. So that will definitely make make a difference um, there probably. But how, like at Bristol, from the outside, it, it feels like you have quite a big kind of in psychology, you know, you now have UKRN is kind of organized out of Bristol. Your PhD is mm -hmm. kind of in open science or like I, you can tell us what what sort of focus you think yeah. it is so how yeah. did it feel like to be in such an environment yeah um I mean I did so I did my placement um during my undergraduate with Marcus in the tobacco and alcohol research group which is Marcus's um research group and um I just loved the culture um sort of Marcus was always pushing stuff that I just hadn't 
even heard of in the scientific community. So like he often, he has a big thing about like imposter syndrome and like always talks about that and how that's how we need discussions around it. And like sort of not working crazy hard hours and like that never feels like a huge amount of sort of publish or perish culture, which is super nice. Um, and also obviously, uh, obviously the whole like open science practices and how that's sort of built in to the tobacco and alcohol research group. Um, so when um, he invited me to do a PhD, it was kind of a bit of no brainer because all of that seemed really encouraging um, in that, in the sense that it's like care for your science and care for your people. Um, so that was really nice. Um, but the PhD is really free form. Um, so I am funded by a essentially a, a philanthropist who's uh, called John Climax, and he works in the pharmaceutical industry. And um, he's part of the UKRN. And he's he basically said his motivation was just he was sick of getting shoddy science through the door. Um, and so decided to fund um a PhD, I think two PhDs in Bristol he's funding and one in Cardiff and I think also one in Oxford. Um, and there's basically no requirements for the PhD. It's just sort of go and solve the problems. Go. Sort of thing. That sounds awesome. <laughs> like how does it feel to be just told to go out and solve the problem with a capital P? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's really exciting because it's a new field and so you're literally starting from ground zero so sort of this the i think a big thing about the reproducibility field and also open science or any kind of initiative to improving research quality is that there are so many ideas and initiatives to improve science and there's almost no evidence uh, there is some but there's really not that much if you're going to compare it to any other kind of field. Um, so that's, so that's really exciting because you can be like, Oh, well we could do a survey and it will be the first survey ever. Um, and it, and so you're sort there's so many ways you can start tackling any part of the problem. You just got to pick up your chisel and pick the part that you're going to go at. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cause uh, I mean, it, cause it, it seems like a very, sort of useful and practical you know that your your work from the very onset is designed to improve the quality of research or address a very kind of uh tangible problem rather than it being a kind of more generic you work within this field give me papers um but isn't it like a kid in a toy shop you know like i think i'd just be there being like oh my god what you know like i feel like once i think of one problem i see a thousand other problems and when i once i understand that problem i find you know that there's so many more and yeah i think i think it it must be quite humbling as well though oh yeah definitely humbling because um when you start to write i don't know if you want to do a literature review on anything you're like wow okay we're gonna have to really go back to the start here um but I mean, this is where Marcus comes in. Like Marcus, um, none of my projects have been my own ideas. Like all of them have been Marcus being like, this is so like maps project, um, the mapping the analytical paths of a crowdsourced data analysis is its full title. Um, but um, Marcus, basically, I just walked into my first supervision meeting and he said, okay, you're meeting Robert Arben, 
next week. So, um, I think you should go to that. He wants you to be involved in this new project, which is um, going on a paper called The Many Analysts. And one day it's that paper. You should also read that. And then that kind of just went from there. Um, I mean, like I'm a first year PhD student. There's not a huge amount of me sort of being like, yes, we should do this study because I don't have a lot of funding for um, for actual studies. Well, and I think as you kind of say, and I think that's something that I f- felt like I didn't get enough guidance on in the first year of my PhD is that you only really know the problem. You know, you're never going to know the problems as well as somebody who's been working in the field for a really long yeah. time. Um and that's where guidance from your supervisor can be so, so helpful. So it sounds like it's really jackpot that, you, that you know, you have that guidance. And then once you, I felt like only in the kind of latter years of my PhD, I actually started, you know, being kind of a toddler standing on my own feet. And now I'm the, the mm-hmm. like really annoyed teenager who kind of just wants to do everything by myself, even though it's like worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm still very much in the beginning of that phase. Um, but I mean, it, yeah, it is. I mean, it is literally a lot of credit to Marcus because, you know, he's the sort of I, I just I do trust that like the projects he's given me are the ones that he thinks are the most feasible and sort of the most important at the current time. Um, and so there's so, yeah, just got to just got to trust him. Yeah, that that combination of sort of being given a lot of freedom and personal responsibility but while also being quite well guided and supported seems to be Mm. an ideal mix i think quite often one of those two pieces is maybe a bit weaker and that makes things more complicated that that sounds amazing um so i think we'll take a very quick break and we'll be back after the break to To pick katie's brains about maps. maps I love I actually really love maps like not both maps and maps Um, (laughs) okay let's go into the break (laughs) you are listening to reproducibility serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology one mug of tea at a time do you like the taste of our podcast give us a follow on twitter at reproducibility rate us on itunes and tell other early career researchers about us if you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over next weeks, we will also release some specialty flavors, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Um... So before the break, um, Katie alluded to the MAPS project, um, and we'd really like to hear more. So Katie, could you just tell us what MAPS is? Yeah. So um, so the mapping the analytical paths of a crowdsourced data analysis, um, I have already given the full title, but there it is Oh, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you can you can tell, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> again, again. Okay. Um, uh, so this is a this is a project which is basically taking a paper by um, Raphael Silberjan um, from two thousand and eighteen et al. Um, where they basically created a no sorry they had a, a football data set and they 
did some pre-processing on it and gave it out to 29 different teams. And I think there was 60 or so more people um, within e- within these teams um, and asked them each to analyze the data as they saw fit um, to answer the question whether dark uh, players with a dark skin tone got more red cards than players with a light skin tone. So, um, so I wasn't there for like the whole um, project sort of idea and creation, but I assume that um, what happened is that Marcus and Robert Arben, who is um, the co-lead on this project um, with me, um, thought that it was awesome and decided to do a similar thing. But we've sort of extended it. So it went through like so many different ideas. Um, but the the general idea is that was, was that we always wanted to do a data set from the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents of Children um, or the ALSPAC study. And so um, in order to use synthetic data, which actually we also had a talk on yesterday at the UKRN um, Open Science Working Group meeting, um, which was great. Um, and Wait, synthetic data? Synthetic data, yes. Um, so synthetic data... It's data made out of plastic. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't tell it. Yeah, I said that to a synthetic biologist. They didn't think it was very funny. Um, but um, no, synth- synthetic data is basically a data set that is, um, I, I mean, you can generate it in quite a few different ways. But if anyone's ever used multiple imputation, um, it's essentially a similar idea to that. So multiple imputation is kind of like mini synthetic data where you're basically predicting what you think the data values of the missing values should have been. And so, so that's already kind of synthetic data and synthetic data is basically that, but the entire data set. Um, so you take a real data set and you generate um, another data set with entirely different values, but all of those variables will have similar relationships, similar distributions, all the, the whole shebang. Um, so ideally you would be able to create an um, an analysis plan from the synthetic data and it would be equally plausible and appropriate for the real data set that sounds like something yeah. harry potter would do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I think that book would have been slightly different. <laughs> and harry potter started his phd <laughs> sorry um that sounds very cool but then why did you why did you need to why do you need to use synthetic data well, because um, the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children is super sensitive data, um, and there is so for so you can actually even get like postcode data, um, but essentially it, it can't be open to the public. So, because we really wanted to use ASPAC data because of the sort of Bristol connection, and also, um, I mean, we wanted to use synthetic data and using. Alspac made the most sense because it was sort of killing two birds with one stone. It's also super expensive um, to access if you want to access it as a scientist, isn't it? Like, yes, it is. It's like um, seven thousand pounds. I, no, I, I, I don't know. It's it's one of the very. I don't know if it's yeah, but I think it racks up pretty fast. I think the initial, um, the very initial cost is like two and a half grand i I don't want to i don't want to tell people that in case it scares people off because i literally don't have a number because Mm -hmm. we got the data from um a previous study and so we didn't need to pay for it because they literally just sent in their data set to elspach and they sent it back to us so it didn't um so it wasn't 
curation heavy, mm. I think, because it was already there. But yeah, people um, who are going to work on this project get data, which is normally not really accessible and expensive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and it's also, it's sort of, it's sort of Bristol's sort of gem in some ways, because it's, it's just, it's now got this sort of crazy, like multi-generational thing going on where like it's been followed for 25 years now. Um, so mothers, 14,000 mothers were recruited in like the nineties and then their kids were followed up who are now 25 and now some of them are having kids. So they've got this like awesomely rich data. Um, so it's, so a lot of people want to use it. Um, so creating a, a synthetic version of it just made a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, so it takes our site data um, and we do basically exactly the same thing as the uh, many analysts one data set um, project where we'll create a synthetic aspect data set and then give it to lots of people. They will run their analyses and return it to us in a standardized way. So we'll, so we've got some submission guidelines and like a particular way that people have to return their analyses to us. And then we will take each of those analyses and run a multiverse analysis, which is basically um, an analysis where you think of all the different ways that you could possibly analyze the data, all the plausible different choices you could have made along the pipeline, create sort of all the different com combinations of those choices and run it essentially. So are you going to do the multiverse or are the people analyzing the data going to do the multiverse? No, so we're doing the multiverse because it's going to be so computationally heavy and you're going to need supercomputers to do it. So we're going to do that. And also, I would imagine that if everyone does their own multiverse, they'll probably do it differently. So it's going to vary. Um, so like, but, so like you get somebody submitting. So for example, my people can sign up to this project kind of, I think they can still sign up to it now. Am I right? Yeah, it's it's so we're not going to close sign up until the day that we also close data submissions because we were sort of like, well, if someone wants to spend 24 hours analyzing the data, they're welcome to do that. The undergrad um, experience. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and so they so submit yeah. like a script and then what you do is kind of think about how could this have been done in slightly different ways and then you run all those slightly different ways or am I getting that correctly? Yeah. Um, so, this, I mean, this is a collaborative project. So if anyone, the whole idea is that if anyone thinks that our design is sort of could be better, that then that's absolutely welcome. Um, so if it transpires sort of later on that, like we need to do a certain number of analytical choices or a certain number of combinations, then that's, that's going to come out. But the current plan is that like when people submit their analyses, because it's going to be done in a standardized way, the standardization is firstly to make it easier for us to run the multiverse analysis. Um, because if it's in a, so for example, all of it has to be in either R or Python, um, and so then that automatically makes it a lot easier for us to rerun, rerun it on as a multiverse. Um, and they're also going to report all the analytical choices that they made throughout the process. So like, ideally what you'll end up with is like sort of the combination speaking for themselves where like everyone will say like, we removed outliers or we collapsed this into this and we 
um, transform this or whatever. And so we'll be able to sort of get a map of all the possible ways you could do it and then build on that and think of more different ways rather than it just be limited by our brainstorming. If that will make sense. <laughs> From, well, I've I've run these, so Sam, does that make sense to you? Oh yeah, yeah, it sounds awesome. Um, it is. <laughs> Sam's just like this is awesome. Well, well I mean, it is. This right? is it's, awesome. If I could go back in time and change everything that I did during my PhD, right? Um, it would have been a very different, um, very different yeah. kinds of projects, and it would have been these kind of things. Um, can I ask uh, what what was the the rationale behind the the research question that you're asking uh, the individual teams to answer? So I've got it here up as yeah. is computer use during weekdays and yeah. weekends at 16 years old associated with depression at 18 years old? Was there a particular reason behind that as being the question? Yeah, well, it had to be it had to be the same or similar research question to the data set that we asked for, um, because of us, because obviously otherwise. So if we asked um, if we wanted a previous data set, we wanted to look at that question. And the other previous data set was looking at I don't know, like um, mothers and alcohol. Then that wasn't going to work. So we needed a previous paper that was done with Alsback that was. Um, that was um, also interesting. So like the many analysts in one data set chose the question of um, football and essentially racism because it's topical and it's interesting and people care about it. And it's, it's um, and yeah, it's, it's exciting to analyze data like that rather than sort of does eating chocolate like make you happy or so. actually that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's a terrible example. <laughs> uh, okay, smoking and cancer, like who would want to analyze that data set? Like everyone knows that. Um, so, but also like it was sort of perfect timing. So Marcus sort of suggested this as um, as the previous paper, as the research question, because mental health is topical, but it's also, there's quite a lot of uncertainty around the answers. So that would hopefully mean that there's a bit of a variety around it because there are some people who think that, um, I mean, Amy is obviously aware of all this stuff, um, but there are some people who are sort of very anti-technology and very worried about what it does to kids. And some people are not, and it's quite an emotive issue. And there's also not a lot of great evidence out there. Um, so it, it just seemed really perfect. And then Amy came out with her like awesome nature specification curve paper. And we were like, well, this is just the best timing ever. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, well, it, I think I think there is so much space. Like the the nice thing about these sorts of projects, isn't it, is that you, yeah, you can contribute to a discussion which is current and it makes people read it that that wouldn't have read a pure methods paper. But I often see kind of, especially that paper you just mentioned, kind of as a Trojan horse. You know, I say like, look, I look at tech, and then like in the inside is just methods. <laughs> Yeah. I do have to say that like it's it's like the the research question is very much not about the research question. Like our project question our our actual research questions for maps, none of them include the actual research question that we've asked people to look at because what we're really interested in is something deeper really. And and it's it's about like how like what can data tell you and like how reliable are different people's methods of an of analyzing it? 
especially around something where there might be quite a lot of confirmation bias and there might be quite a lot of emotion. And like, that's really the question. I mean, and also there's the issue of the, of the data set, which, you know, is, is longitudinal data. So it's questionnaire data and there's limitations to that. So there's all that other stuff. Um, Oh, and I have to say that there's a visualization challenge that we have not been plugging enough. <laughs> um, so, so based on this whole crowdsourced process and all the multiverse, all the multiverses of the crowdsourced data analysis, we're going to get an insane uh, data set from that, um, and then we're going to ask some, ask the internet essentially to try and visualize it, which is cool. <laughs> yeah even though I'm still I'm yeah I'm still kind of I I'm interested in what happens <laughs> if there's any I've seen um I've recently heard about Kaggle so if there's any like frequent Kagglers out there who really like crazy data sets to visualize then this might be one of those that would be <laughs> Hopefully. Awesome. amazing crowdsource science I like it well isn't it like I've been before we had you on the podcast, I was kind of reflecting on how maps fits into kind of key questions that not questions, kind of thoughts that people are now having that people didn't have four years ago or even two years ago. And I think one of them is this crowdsourcing of science that is becoming ever mm -hmm. more popular. And then the second is this um, that we used to think that data analysis was just kind of like a magnifying glass you put to the data and you then see what what's in the data <laughs> and i think more and more yeah. we see that no data analysis is not a magnifying glass it's a tool that can actually change what the data shows you and yeah. i think how do you think those two things do fit into your project or is there something that you also think is kind of your project is going to show yeah i mean that's that's kind of the whole point um is to look at sort of what is the benefits of statistical processes like and also how feasible it's also a, a sort of feasibility study in a way like purely because there's very little crowdsourced studies out there like I, I don't really know all of them um but you know there's stuff like the many labs one two three many four, babies five. <laughs> many classrooms many, many yeah. everything um, but i would i would love to know like sort of how everyone's been finding it i know charlie Ebersold wrote a, a quick google doc and tweeted it out recently about um many labs and like sort of his experiences with them so i would i would really love to see like some guidance starting to come out about collaborative work and it's, it's essentially project management on steroids and like you know because you're dealing with so many people and any mistakes that you make are also stealing other people's time so it's not just like oh no, I messed up and that's my bad. You, It's, oh no, I messed up and that's everyone's bad. So it's, it's, it would be really good to see some guidance about minimizing the risks of it, sort of mm -hmm. the sort of time. But yeah. So if you had like 30 seconds to sell why people, our listeners should get involved analyzing data with the MAPS project, what would you say? I would say it's a really cool data set. <laughs> It's a really cool data set and there's going to be so many findings across so many different things because it's going to be, you're not only going to get a comparison across the synthetic and the real, you're also going to get a comparison across the crowdsource and the multiverse. So it's like, 
yeah, it's going to be hopefully mind blowing. <laughs> I don't know. I might over. I might have just oversold it by using the word mind. <laughs> I'm going to take that back. I just want to have like a mind blow gift. <laughs> it's going to be boom. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. It's one of these projects that has the opportunity to like to sort of make a wave, but in lots of different ways, all at the same time. Mm. And kind of like you said there, Amy, with your paper, kind of you've got a really heavy methods paper, but then it's also kind of wrapped in... In bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> you know, this is, it's, all, it's also like all the genius of like all the statisticians behind it. So Robert Urban and Natalie Thirlby, and they're the guys who are going to be behind the multiverse and like trying to run billions of different comparisons and regressions and possibly even some Bayesian stuff going on. Um, so they're, they're, they're definitely going to be sort of some of the brains behind a big machine. So hopefully they'll be able to work some stats magic on the whole thing. Stats magic. I like it. I mean, they already have with synthesizing <laughs> the data. So that was already them. Awesome. Um, <laughs> um, so I think we've probably only got a few minutes left. So we we normally have a, a few questions that we tend to ask people. But I guess the, the one that we'll maybe throw at you today is, um, do you have any uh, advice or um, or any kind of no, advice that you would give to kind of starting early career researchers or incoming PhDs that maybe don't quite know where to start with open reproducible work um, and kind of where they should go? Um, this was a really good message from yesterday, which I think kind of deals with the sort of some of the slightly maybe unsavory um things that have been said about the open science community and that is do whatever you can because any transparent or reproducible or any kind of quality improving initiative that you take on and apply to any of your projects is something and it's better than nothing um and this whole idea of like Kirsty Whitaker and Christina Bergman's um idea of like a buffet approach where you literally go in and you pick and choose which open science practices you want to do and which work for your project and I think that was a, a really good message from yesterday. Oh, that's amazing. I think we might have a, a snippet to post when we advertise this episode. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm just stealing. I'm stealing what they said yesterday. I thought, but that's, that's science in general. Oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, yeah. Casey. It's been, uh, it's been great to speak to you about kind of your experiences and UKRN and building on maps. Um, uh thank you for coming on thank you, thank you. Okay, um, and to our listeners tune in next time where we will have yet another awesome early career researcher that we want you to meet 